If I were to ask you to give me a definition of the word prodigal this morning, what would you say? When I'm writing a message, I try to be careful not to include a bunch of church words that people in the audience might not understand. That's especially true here, I think, because we have a lot of ages, different ages, in a service like this on Sunday. So I work to make the message understandable to all of us. Today's message does include a reference to Jesus' story in Luke 15 that is commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. So just in case that's a new term for anyone here today, let me describe a prodigal this way. A prodigal is a person who spends money in a reckless or extravagant way. It can also mean a person who has left their family in order to do something that the family disapproves of and then returns home feeling sorry for what they had done. There was a Canadian poet by the name of Ethelwyn Weatherald who lived in the early part of the 20th century. And while doing some research on her writings, a little known poem was discovered that she wrote about what it's like to be a prodigal on the way back home, but with your heart not yet changed. In just a few sentences, the poem Prodigal Yet captures the plight of the child who strays away and who isn't quite ready to give up the high life in the far country. So listen to its words. She writes, Muck of the sty, reek of the trough, blackened my brow where all might see. Yet while I was a great way off, my father ran with compassion to me. He put on my hand a ring of gold. There's no escape from a ring, they say. He put on my neck a chain to hold my passionate spirit from breaking away. He put on my feet the shoes that miss no chance to tread in the narrow path. He pressed on my lips the burning kiss that scorches deeper than fires of wrath. He filled my body with meat and wine. He flooded my heart with love's white light. And yet deep in the mire, With sensual swine, I long, God help me, again to wallow tonight. Muck of the sty, reek of the trough, blacken my soul where none may see. Father, I am yet a long way off. Come quickly, Lord, have compassion on me. As I read those words, I think about how quickly we can fall into sin how far down the wrong road we can go, and how easy it is to deceive ourselves and to deceive others. Those searing words speak about an inner battle that we all feel from time to time. It's a battle we sometimes sing about in the more familiar words of perhaps the old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. There's a line in there that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. I'm guessing that in a congregation of this size that many of us today have prodigals in our lives. We have loved ones who are far away from the Lord. Some of them grew up in Sunday school. Some went to Christian college. Some of them were raised to love Jesus. Some of them once could quote Bible verses. Some were leaders in their youth group. Some went on mission trips, but today, today they are far from God. 
Some of them are doing things today that would shock us deeply if we knew about them. So as we begin to think about those prodigal friends or prodigal parents or prodigal sons and daughters, remember this one key point. No matter what you may think about the way your family or your friends are living, no matter how angry you may be at their choices that they have made, the root problem is never on the outside. The problem is always on the inside. As the poem reminds us, we may be in church every Sunday, smiling and singing and going through all the motions, but still have rebellion deep in our hearts. The problem is always in the heart. That's really good news because there is only one person in the whole universe that can change the heart, and he specializes in divine heart surgery. You see, I can preach a thousand messages. We can all sing a thousand songs, and together we can attend a thousand church services, but apart from the Lord, it will do no good. Why? Because it's not outer change that we need, but deep inner transformation by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes in our attempt to reach out to the prodigals in our life, we can intervene too soon. Do you remember what happened to the prodigal son in Luke 15? Listen to how Luke tells the story. A few days later, this younger son packed up all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. After he had wasted all of his inheritance in wild living, he ended up feeding the pigs. As Eugene Peterson puts it, he was so hungry he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him one. Now, if you saw that, you might think that man is, that young man is ready for a new life. Well, maybe he is, maybe, but maybe not. In the story that Jesus told, the father waited for his son to return and then ran to meet him while he was still a long way from home. What if the father in the story had gone after his son and tried to bring him back even one day early? The son might have said, hey, if you'd have just left me alone for one more day, I would have made all my money back. You see, that's how it goes. We may think that someone has hit rock bottom when they are still scheming a way out of their problems. It was not until the son, as the scripture says, came to his senses that he decided to return home. That has to happen to every prodigal in our life, whether it's a son, a daughter, a parent, whoever it is. And it cannot be predicted and it cannot be forced. That's because repentance is first of all, a work of God in the human heart. And if we come just even a day too soon, the prodigal will always think with one day more, 
I would have figured it all out and I would have solved all my own problems. As long as the scheming and the lying and the deceiving continues, the best thing that we can do is to pray for God's spirit to bring them to their senses and then wait patiently until that day comes. Underlying all of this are two bits of important theology. First of all, God knows us better than we know ourselves. And secondly, God knows how to reach us at just the right moment. People sometimes ask, do you think God can speak to me today? And I tell them, don't worry about it. God's got your number on speed dial. He can ring your phone any time of the day or night, and when he calls, you won't be able to ignore it or put it on hold. He's got your number written on his heart. He knows exactly how to get in touch with you. You see, Jonah is about to learn that lesson the hard way. When last we left this reluctant prophet, he seemed to be on top of the world. He was on a boat headed for Tarshish, running from the Lord. When God told him, go to Nineveh, he said, I think I'll go to Tarshish. God said, go east. And Jonah said, I think I'll go west. And so he did. He went down to Joppa, which was an ancient uh, port city just south of modern-day Tel Aviv, where he found a boat bound for Tarshish. Amazing, isn't it, how when you want to run from God, we can always find a boat going where we want to go. When we want to run from God, when we want to disobey God, we can always find a boat going in the direction we want to go. That's because Satan has his ships and they always are ready to take on one more passenger. So Jonah pays his fare, and he boards the ship, as it, and as it left the harbor, he went down below, we are told, to take a nap. Pretty nice deal he has going here. It was all working out just as he had planned. He's on a comfy Mediterranean cruise. Soon he's going to be in Tarshish, which is a beautiful city in Spain, and there he could live the high life, far from the presence of the Lord, or so he thought. And that's where we left Jonah last week. It was a pretty picture of a self-satisfied man who seemed to have gotten away with his disobedience. But whenever you read a story like that in the Bible, you know there's a but coming. God will not let his straying children live in sin forever. No one gets a free ride on the ship of fools. Let's take a look at how God begins the process of bringing Jonah back home. And as we see how God deals with Jonah, we'll discover that God deals with us in the same way when we disobey him. First of all, sometimes God sends storms into our life to get our attention. Look at verses 4 and 5. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and then threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. Now you know it must have been a pretty bad storm because these men were professional sailors. They had seen it all. They were hardened to the dangers of life at sea. 
And if they were scared, it must have been truly terrible storm. So they started the first interfaith prayer meeting recorded in the Bible. It says, each man began crying out to their own God. They started throwing their prophet away, tossing the cargo overboard. Now, we talked about this last week, how life for us can sometimes turn on a dime. It's just a moment in time, a phone call, a result, a a, a conversation, something that turns our life around quickly. God always knows how to get our attention. He is infinitely creative and he can send a storm in so many different ways into our life. He can send a storm of adverse circumstances. He can send a storm of financial collapse. He can send a storm of trouble in our home or even in the church. He can send a storm of career implosion. See, our God is infinitely creative. He can send a storm in so many different ways. And when we're in the storm, we tend to be fearful and angry and frustrated. And it's only later that we realize that the storm was the mercy of God. That's always step one for the prodigal. The storms come to get our attention. Secondly, sometimes God allows others to suffer because of our sin. You know, everyone on board is endangered by Jonah's sin. Jonah was the sinner in this situation, and yet his foolish rebellion endangered everyone around him. I want you to think about these four words. We never sin alone. We never sin alone. We may be alone when we sin, but we never sin alone. Our sin, our compromise, our deceit always injures others. Maybe our spouse, it may be our children, maybe our friends, our family, but every step we take out of the will of God hurts people around us. And then third, sometimes God sends someone into our life to challenge us. Challenge us. As the ship groans and creaks under the weight of the wind and the heavy waves, and as these men are throwing the cargo overboard in a desperate attempt to save the ship, where's Jonah? You might think he'd be out there on deck helping the sailors, but not a chance. He's down below. He's taking a nap. How could someone sleep during such a terrible storm like this? And the answer is simple. The devil has his sleeping pills too. He knows how to put us to sleep when the world is crashing in around us. How else can you explain a person's reckless behavior in having one affair after another? How else can you explain a person who breaks the law and then continues to lie about it? How else can you explain a parent who abandons their own children? The devil puts us to sleep while the ship sinks and the world falls apart around us. Look what happens next in verse 6. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this? He shouted, get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. Now at this point, the captain, who is probably an unbeliever, has more faith than Jonah. Seeing the danger, he wants Jonah to wake up and to start praying. Now think about this for a moment. The world doesn't want our message 
The world wants our prayers. The world generally doesn't care about what we say and what we do on Sunday morning. It seems rather boring to to many, mostly irrelevant, which is why this Sunday and every Sunday, 80% of the people in America will not be in church anywhere. Take any major American uh, city or community, including those in the so-called Bible Belt, and see it for yourself. It doesn't matter what part of the country we're talking about or any given Sunday of the year, many people don't go to church anywhere. The numbers are staggering. They stay home, they stay in bed, they wake up late, they take a walk, they read the paper, they watch TV, they play sports, they go on a hike, they go to the lake, In general, they live as if the church doesn't exist. And that isn't changing no matter how much we preach against it. A pastor I know led a one-day pastor's conference in a city near the coast of southern Maine, and while when he asked about the spiritual temperature of that region, the pastors who were in that area said this, Even though most people in in our area don't go to church, it wouldn't be right to call them hostile toward the church. Actually, most of them don't care enough to be hostile. Mostly, they are uninterested in anything the church has to offer. You see, the world doesn't care about our religion, but what the world wants is for us to pray. Get up, Jonah. Call on your God. Maybe he can save us. Why? Because we claim the living God. We claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We claim to have access to the God of the universe. The world knows this, and even if the world doesn't want our religion, it desperately wants our prayers. The people of the world say to us, can't you see what's happening? My marriage is falling apart. My kids are in trouble. I just lost my job. My husband has cancer. We can't pay our bills. You say you know God. If you do, wake up. Pray for us. Let me ask you a sobering question. Why don't we pray more for the people we know and care about who don't know Jesus? Why don't we pray more for the people we care about and the people we love who don't know Jesus? You know, we can preach a thousand messages and the world doesn't care. But the world does want us to pray. We often wonder how to reach this generation that seems so turned off to God, so turned off to religion, If we wait for people to come to our services, we will wait, in some cases, forever. So here's a simple question that we can open up with and open a spiritual conversation. Just ask somebody, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? Those six words will make a difference. The world is waiting for us to pray. Why aren't we doing it? You see, people can do without our messages. They can live without our our, our services, but they can't live without our prayers. And if they get our prayers, one day they might listen to the message. Well, that's the beginning of Jonah's life on the ship and his story. 
Next week, we'll discover that being swallowed by a great fish may be the best thing that ever happened to Jonah, and maybe even to us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have revealed your love to us today. Thank you for the lessons we're learning from Jonah's life. Fan into flame, we pray the gifts that you have given us. Reveal your grace and your love to each of us today. And remind us again and again to pray for those around us who need Jesus. For yours is truly the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.